Welcome back to the program. Let's pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to begin with a very short scripture, and the scripture is from um, James chapter 3, verse 1. And this is what it says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be held to a stricter account. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you that your Son, Jesus, now glorified uh, and at your right hand, has sent forth your Holy Spirit upon the church to keep the church indefectible in holiness, that we are grounded in you, O God, as a one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Today, Father, I bring before you, in Jesus' name, the successors of the apostles. I pray for our bishops. I pray for Pope Francis. I pray for the cardinals and the bishops who have been raised to this dignity of the fullness of the priesthood, the fullness of the sacrament of holy orders. And I ask, Lord, I plead with you, make them holy, make them wise, and make them courageous. Lord, we follow your guidance in the Liturgy of the Hours, and we surrender to you, O God. And we ask that you would do everything for us. And so, Lord, we approach you humbly with our prayer, humbly with our fasting and acts of self-denial. And we ask, Jesus, that you would give bishops the grace of following you more fully into the desert and in following you be willing to undertake the spiritual battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. I ask, God, that you'd cleanse their minds and their hearts, strengthen their wills, and, Lord, we pray that they would be for us shepherds after your own heart, shepherds who look to you and then follow you as shepherds following the Good Shepherd. Come what may. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be held to a stricter account. That, that's quite a statement. And that's something that um, bishops, I, I know they've heard it, they, I'm sure they've reflected on it, but boy, it, it feels as if right now there is sort of breaking out into the open um, a, a phenomenon, a need, a, a phenomenon, a manifestation of something that points to the need for us, who are the lay people, the lay faithful, to be praying and even fasting for our bishops, for the successors of the apostles. Today in the program, I'm going to share with you a bit more about my history in um, ministry, going all the way back to the seminary, and then the way in which I've been called to serve bishops, 
dioceses and in the bishops' conference uh, in the United States and in bishops even around the world. And in doing so, hopefully highlight um, some dynamics and factors that will press up against the bishop's ability, the, the ability of bishops. And I'm not talking about any particular bishop. I'm talking about the bishops, just as a, as a trend or as a dynamic that um, will lead to the conclusion, we need to be praying more for our bishops. Do you pray for your bishop? Do you pray for your own bishop or archbishop, depending on where it is where you're listening? And do you think about that, the, the, the importance of praying for bishops? You know, on the program, I do tend to focus on the laity. And and why? Well, 99.9% .9 of you listening to the program are the lay faithful, like me. Um, probably the great majority of you are are married, a husband or a father, a husband or a mother, or a <laughs> husband or a wife, a father or a mother, grandparents, even great-grandparents. Or in your own discernment of your own call as a single person, the again, the majority among you are discerning call to the to the uh, to the lay state as as married uh, as 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 a call to marriage. So, with that being the case, I tend to focus a lot of my time and attention on helping you to live your faith, to foster faith in your spouse and in your family, and to face the challenges that you have in your call to lead and provide and protect your families, and that's right and proper. And alongside that, when I discern and highlight, we lay faithful, what, what's our call today? What, what should we be paying attention to, and how are we going to take action? I'll, I'll use the theme of the Elijah moment. You've heard me talk about that even recently with a couple of recent interviews. The Elijah moment was what, from uh, the from First Kings, where Elijah is in a standoff against the 400 prophets of Baal, and King Ahab is wanting to uh, eliminate Elijah. And Elijah faces God's people and says, how long will you straddle the issue if the Lord is God, follow him, if Baal, follow him? But the people did not respond. And that is, in my heart, a place of pain, and a cause of me wanting to promote a sense of urgency in you, a sense of zeal in you to recognize that the house is on fire and we have a call to rush in and rescue those who might otherwise lose their lives, lose their spiritual lives, lose their, their emotional health and well-being, their physical health and well-being, their, their relationship in their families flourishing, and their faith, right? Their spiritual lives, their faith in the Lord as Catholics. And I see so many issues that are risking and threatening and diminishing and attacking the Catholic faith in families, the Catholic faith of children, that I do appropriately put a primary emphasis in this Elijah moment on the laity. However, we do need to pray for our bishops because when you look at how the Lord has moved in the history of the church, 
what you'll discover is that times of great degradation in the life of the church, of decay in the fervor and holiness in the life of the church, times of heresy and times of of rampant sin are times where bishops were not leading the way and were in fact permitting or promoting the very degradating sinful activities and behaviors that were active at the time. And in the midst of all of that, the the Lord raises up a bishop, a bishop who is a saint, or a pope, who uh, the Archbishop of Rome, right? The Bishop of Rome, uh, who God uses and and flames with this passion for holiness, this passion for orthodoxy, this passion to rescue God's people and to be a shepherd after the heart of the Good Shepherd. And so, just as a big examples and. Archbishop Fulton Sheen, he references this, that it's around every 500 years the church reaches a crisis moment. And in these crisis moments, we see that it's often the bishops who, through their failure in leadership and through a broken, dark, sinful forms of leading, are contributing or fostering such a, a breakup in the church and, and a breakdown in the church. And, and it's then that God raises up the saints. So in the first 500 years, you see Arianism, right? It emerges out of Alexandria with uh, Arius and his teaching about Christ as divine, but not divine in the way that the Father is divine. This belief, this heresy, is presented in a clever way, a clever way that it doesn't appear to be heretical, but rather, let's call it heterodox. So it's not orthodox. It wasn't the simple teaching of the church, but it was an attempt to cleverly present a belief that was acceptable or could be heard and received as being in alignment with the teaching of the church that Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man. And as God was fully God, the way God the Father is God and and God the Holy Spirit is God. But the language that Arius uses is clever and it seduces and is embraced by a majority of bishops in the church in the 4th century. Some say the statistic is 70% of the bishops at the time. Some say it's even higher than that. But they embrace this teaching that has implications. It has implications that go downstream from a simple belief There's a lot at stake in how we believe. How we believe, St. John Paul II brings this out, and I'm never tiring of saying it. The truths that we embrace get sown into our, our consciousness. 
They take root in our heart and they give rise to our conduct. They shape how we see. They fundamentally will uh, shape and, and transform how we approach our relationship with the Lord. And it's going to manifest itself also in how we live our life. And what happens? God raises up Athanasius, a bishop and a saint. But he experienced uh, beatings and, and imprisonments, exiles. He suffered heroically, so much so that he became a saint. And, you know, Athanasius against the world, right? And he comes up with his creed that is a, a way of stating, no, this is the authentic belief of the church. That is a heresy, and it must be withstood. It must be rejected. Thank God for Athanasius. Go forward 500 years, and it's less focused on belief, and it's more focused on practice. Two specific practices that in the 11th century, it's slightly more than 500 years, but Bishop Sheen, you know, he's being, he's round, he has some rounding errors. <laughs> we have a time when bishops are called out by Pope Gregory VII, as well as by St. Peter Damien, right? So St. Peter Damien um, was a, he was a hermit. He was uh, a, um, a, a hermit and um, lived a very holy life, even though he was uh, very well educated and came from uh, a wealthy background. He lived the life of a monk and lived in monasteries, but began to see the way in which the bishops in particular were living, and it was scandalous. And the two things in particular that he called out, along with Pope Gregory VII, were around money and sex. I know, it's bishops and priests, right? But bishops and priests were being called out, in particular, for the rampant sexual activity that bishops and priests were having with other men. So bishops were having sexual relations with men, and the other scandal of the time was around money, that they were using their position to sell ecclesiastical favors and other goods to enrich themselves. And in this context, God raises up Pope Gregory VII, as well as Peter Damien, to address this scandal. And what did it take? It took a tremendous amount of heroism, courage, wisdom, holiness, to be able to withstand the, the, the tidal wave of what was coming against the church and the devastating impacts that it was having on the church. And so once again, we see that in a time when the church was struggling, when it was diminishing, when there were signs of 
decay at the moral level, at the level of spiritual influence, at the level of societal impact. It was giving in to society and actually leading the way into dark expressions of sinful behaviors in society. And it was the failure of the bishops. And the failure of the bishops in permitting it among their priests. And God raised up again another, well, more than one saint to call for vigorous, rigorous reform in the church. All right, we're coming up against a break. And when we do, we're going to flash forward another 500 years. And then we're going to get to today because I mentioned that this is all leading to the call that you and I have as the lay faithful to be praying and fasting, doing penance and making acts of self-denial for our bishops. For we live in troubling times in the life of the church. We live in a time of diminishment in the life of the church. And we have to look to our bishops, the successors of the apostles whom God has established to lead the way. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, back to Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran, and it's a Lenten program today, and in particular, I'm focusing in this Lenten program on the call we have, really, an urgent call for us to pray and do penance for our bishops so that they would become freed from any attachment, any bondage to sin and darkness that is part of their lives, and that they might become awakened at a whole new level to a fervent holiness, a prophetic courage, and a reverence for the, the Lord our God who has placed them in their role in order to lead the faithful come what may. Come what may, the loss of reputation, the loss of wealth, the loss of prestige, and to come against some of the dynamics and forces that are holding back the kind of vigorous reform the church needs if we are to awaken in the faithful the glory of the Lord that will shine forth and magnetically draw people to the fullness of truth and the fullness of the means of sanctification that God has entrusted to the Catholic Church that is available to us in the sacraments, in her teaching, and in her moral, uh, her moral way of life, in, her, in, in the call that she has to, in the call we have to live in accord with the, the moral teaching of the Church. Okay, I mentioned Bishop Sheen speaks to this need to reform, to revive, and to come against spiritual darkness that clings to the church about every 500 years. We flash forward about 500 years and we get to the Protestant Reformation. And if you read 
the history of the Reformation, what do you see? You see a, a church that not in her teaching has faltered, but in the way that the bishops are leading the church at the time is marked by, again, scandalous practices that involve lavish lifestyle, self-aggrandizement of power, and excesses associated with luxury and political power and influence. And so in these circumstances, we see a call to reform that turns into a revolt in Protestant reformers, and they cry out alongside Catholic reformers, Catholic uh, saints whom God raises up to speak truth to power, to speak the call to reform and holiness in living and following Jesus Christ as bishops. Think of the, the great Cardinal Philip Neri, this saint in Rome. You think of Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, the Archbishop of Milan. God raises them up as part of a Catholic counter-reformation. And then we can obviously point to other great reformer saints that emerge in this time period, like St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila, St. Ignatius of Loyola. God raises up saints. And the principal theme that emerges in these saints is stripping away the, the luxuries, stripping away the intrigues that are associated with political power and seeking to go after and to protect one's own situations of comfort. And they call for a radical poverty, simplicity, and pursuit of the holy God. And they are calling out bishops. They are calling out the, the leaders of religious orders. Some of them are bishops. Some of them are abbots, uh, other superiors. But once again, we come back around to this theme in the history of the church where the church stumbles and is falling, where the church is weak and impotent, where the church is being struck by and attached to evils in the time. It's the bishops who have failed to fulfill their call to holiness, and everyone suffers as a result. And so let's come forward 500 years. Here we are, our time. And interestingly, Bishop Sheen he ends up saying that in our time, when he is talking about the corruption he sees in the church, he points to the laity. He says it's the age of the laity. He is not looking to the bishops or the hierarchy to be the source of saintly reformers that are going to bring about changes in the church. But he points to us. Well, I'm going to point back to him. I'm going to point back to saints that God has raised up, but I want to point at first to the nature of the issue. Actually, issues. Because if we look at and tease out what I've shared about the three, the, these every 500-year cycles, these three moments of corruption that was attached to bishops in the life of the church, 
do we see any echoing of those phenomena today? So I pointed principally in the first crisis to a crisis of teaching. So it was heresy versus orthodoxy and the clever presentation of teaching that we would call heterodox that won the day. In the second 500 years, the two principal sources of, let's call them spiritual crimes that were clinging to bishops and were promoted or permitted by them were around sexual immorality, in particular, uh, bishops and priests having sex with men, so sodomy, as well as an emphasis on simony, or the selling of ecclesiastical favors for monetary gain. And then go forward 500 years, and we have themes that are less connected with either the beliefs or with the kind of corruption mentioned in the in the 11th century, but rather it's more about luxury, it's more about political power, it's more around the comforts of the life that one is living and enriching oneself at the expense of the laity. So, the devil doesn't have many new tricks. The devil is going to use the world and the flesh, as well as direct spiritual attacks, to come against our bishops today. And we do have a part. Lay faithful. We do have a part to play. Our part is not simply to pray, pay, and obey. It's a cutesy way of referring to the fact that the laity for too long have been too passive in simply saying, absolutely, bishop or father, I will do my duty to pray, pay, and obey, and, and you've got this. You, you will shepherd us, and things will go well. Well, if we go back 50 years, maybe the world around us wasn't in such a state where we would feel, let's call it, in-depth spiritual corruption um, pouring forth from the ranks of bishops in a way that was uh, destroying and diminishing the life of the faithful. And we see that in the radical drop in the number of Catholics and in the participation of self-identifying Catholics in the life of the faith. And so let's take a look. Let's take a look and see where do we measure up with regards to these three areas. So let's start with the first one. Let's start with the Athanasian response to heterodoxy. And honestly, this was the reason why I'm bringing this whole topic up, was that a bishop, a bishop from uh, Illinois, um, he wrote an essay that was imagining heretical cardinals. And he ends up in his essay quoting an actual cardinal, a cardinal archbishop of San Diego. And what he ends up saying, this bishop, Paprocki is his name, uh, Bishop Thomas Paprocki, Paprocki, he's the bishop of Springfield, Illinois. Um, he wrote this essay uh, in a journal uh, called First Things. And, the, and it came out just last week. It's called Imagining 
a heretical cardinal. And he says, imagine if a cardinal of the Catholic Church were to publish an article in which he condemned, quote-unquote, a theology of Eucharistic coherence that multiplies barriers to the grace and gift of the Eucharist, and stated that, quote, unworthiness cannot be the prism of accompaniment for disciples of the God of grace and mercy. And he goes on, but I'm just going to stop there. Because what is happening there, when you hear that language, just listen to the language, a theology of Eucharistic coherence that multiplies barriers to the grace and gift of the Eucharist. What in the world is being said there in that language that sounds at, at, at least a little puzzling, but if you dig into it, it, it it's very cloudy, but at worst, it's, it's very clever. A theology of Eucharistic coherence that multiplies barriers to the grace and gift of the Eucharist. What this quote is getting at, and then the second part comes in, unworthiness cannot be the prism of accompaniment for disciples of the God of grace and mercy. Unworthiness. He's saying, imagine that there was a cardinal who condemned the idea that we shouldn't put up obstacles to people coming forward to receive Holy Communion as if doing that is a way of punishing people rather than accompanying them. And in accompanying them, manifesting the God of grace and mercy. God wants to mercifully walk with people, go out to the peripheries, be with them there, accompany them back to the doors of the church, and welcome them at the Eucharistic table to receive Jesus in Holy Communion. And... This idea of condemning anyone who would put up barriers is something that Bishop Paprocki puts forward as, imagine if this happened. Well, the thing that isn't ironic, the thing that is it's actually happening there, is that he is actually criticizing the actual words of Cardinal McElroy, the bishop, the, uh, the cardinal... Bishop of San Diego. And it is, it's a striking thing. And Bishop Paprocki calls it out. He says, until recently, it'd be hard to imagine any successor of the apostles making such heterodox statements. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon today to hear Catholic leaders affirm unorthodox views that not too long ago would have been espoused only by heretics. Now, Bishop Paprocki doesn't name Cardinal McElroy directly, but he ends up quoting the opening paragraph in Cardinal McElroy's uh, essay in America Magazine on radical inclusion. And so it's it's, it's really a striking thing that's happening here. We have a bishop calling for clarity and condemning a way of speaking that is smooth and clever and puts this soft music into the room to lull us into a sense of saying, those words sound so right. How can anyone be so mean and harsh to stand in the way of 
of anyone coming forward to receive Jesus in the Eucharist. How can anyone? You mean like St. Paul, who in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about people receiving communion unworthily, and that's why many of you are sick and dying? Wow. All right, I'm up against a break. Back in a minute with more sound insight in our call to pray and fast for our bishops. Welcome back to the Catholic to the Catholic Church. <laughs> Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Carnum talking about the urgent need we have to pray and fast for our bishops today so that they would be cleansed of any of the manifestations that have led to a corrupt episcopate, a corrupt set of bishops in the life of the church that led to a time of diminishment and uh, spiritual uh, minimization, minimaliz- minimalization of the very life of God that God intends to have flourish in our midst. And so I'm looking at these three 500-period pieces of time and seeing if, in fact, some of what we see happening today is a result of the desperate need we have for our bishops to stand up and, number one, proclaim the fullness of the church's teaching as the church teaches it not using clever heterodox. So it's not directly heretical, but it's not clean, clear, simple, orthodox teaching. So you have Cardinal McElroy calling for a Eucharistic theology that, and this is a quote from him, a Eucharistic theology that effectively invites all of the baptized to the table of the Lord rather than the theology of Eucharistic coherence that multiplies barriers to the grace and gift of the Eucharist multiplying barriers. Now, apparently, Cardinal McElroy is walking away from or maybe cleverly just skirting near the edge of what the church actually teaches in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1415 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Not the Baltimore Catechism, 1992 Catechism. Anyone aware of having sinned mortally must not receive communion without having received absolution in the sacrament of penance. And that teaching is something that Bishop Propaki would say, if we're proposing something other than that, like Cardinal McElroy's statement, that those are contrary, this is again quoting Bishop Propaki, contrary to a truth which is to be believed by divine and Catholic faith. And then he quotes St. Paul here, the truth about Eucharistic coherence, that means there must be this sense of consistency between the life I live and my coming forward to receive Holy Communion and, and that what I believe and the way I'm living my life and the, uh, the, uh, the sense of submission and following of the, the hierarchy of the church. The truth about Eucharistic coherence that must be believed by divine and Catholic faith was articulated by St. Paul in his first letter to Corinthians. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body uh, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This has been the constant teaching of the church for the past 2,000 years. And then he goes on, and then I'll stop. It's deeply troubling to consider the possibility that prelates, that's bishops, holding the office of diocesan bishop in the Catholic Church may be separated 
or not in full communion because of heresy. Yet both the cases mentioned above would, in fact, involve heresy. Since heresy is defined as the obstinate denial or obstinate doubt after the reception of baptism of some truth which is to be believed by divine and Catholic faith. And so Bishop Paprocki did end up clarifying uh, in a statement to the Catholic News Agency. He said, I intentionally did not mention names, right? He said, imagine, because I don't want this to be about the personalities involved, but about the teaching, the Catholic teachings that are being denied. And the last thing I'll say, quoting him, is it not contrary to the Catholic faith and therefore heresy to say that sexual sins are not a grave matter? Is it not contrary to the Catholic faith and therefore heresy to say that one may receive Holy Communion despite having committed grave sin without repenting? If so, what are the canonical implications of such heresies? In the case of a person holding heretical views, that person has de facto separated themselves ontologically, that is, in reality, from the communion of the church. Thus, heretics, apostates, and schismatics inflict the penalty of excommunication on themselves. And a cardinal of the church, like any other Catholic who denies settled Catholic teaching, embraces heresy, the result of which is automatic excommunication from the Catholic Church. That is a mic drop. If I could drop my mic right now, I would do a mic drop. Because Bishop Propaki is, he is throwing down a standard and saying, um, bishops, we are successors of the apostles. We are called upon to authentically and that means also authoritatively, hand over to the faithful the truth that has been entrusted to us. We are not masters of the truth. We are its servants. And when you think about the bishops as successors of the apostles, you know that the apostles did not have a very good record. (laughs) One betrayed him, Judas. One denied him three times vehemently and uh, swearing that he didn't know him, Peter. And we had eight flee in fear, and one lurked around the edges but did accompany Jesus to the foot of the cross, John. So not a very good record among the successors of the apostles, and yet they were the ones chosen. So... This is one example where I say, thank you, Lord, for raising up a bishop to call out his brother bishops in saying, we have a God-given responsibility. And again, to quote James chapter 3, not everyone should be teachers, for we, my brothers, will be held to a stricter account. It's what is true that is good. It is what is true that will lead to human flourishing. It's what is true that is going to lead to beauty. And what we need from our bishops, what we expect from our bishops, what we have a right to hear from our bishops is not 
their ideas, their clever spin, their attempt to be relevant, their attempt to be up to date. No, I want someone faithful to Jesus Christ and to the teaching of the church, and I am looking for those bishops to stand up and speak with courage, with clarity, with consistency, and with completeness what the church teaches. For that will be a bulwark, a hedge of defense against the lies that get sown into the minds and hearts of those who have believed in evil, who have embraced an evil, and how will they be called forth from that evil, from that darkness and the slavery of that sin, if they're being taught clever, sympathetic language that is not putting into question the way that they're living. That is not mercy. Please love us enough, bishops, to not let us get away with what you know is not good for us. Please do not let us get away with what you know is not good for us. Okay, so this then leads to the second question, which is, why? Why would Cardinal McElroy, why would other bishops and cardinals embrace these heterodox positions cleverly presented that enable and permit devastating sexual sins, devastatingly broken lifestyles that lead to spiritual darkness and spiritual slavery. Why would, why would they allow that? Why would they permit that? I have a reason. And this is going to bring us forward 500 years. Remember, we're going to move now from the great challenge of heresy requiring saintly bishops to raise up like Athanasius to speak the truth and to call for the truth. Thank you, God, for Bishop Paprocki. And let's shift 500 years and let's move forward to the great Gregorian reform of Pope Gregory VII and St. Peter Damien. And maybe we'll get an insight into why we have such heterodox positions and heretical positions being presented today even by bishops. I'm going to give you a hint. It has something to do with morality, sexual morality, and the reemergence of the 11th century sins that were condemned by St. Peter Damien. More on this in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sunset. This is Tom Curran, and I'm talking about the need we have as lay people to pray and fast and do penance for our bishops. Deliver us from evil. Forgive us our trespasses. We are not completely removed from the brokenness and the cowardice and the lack of courageous presentation of the gospel today among a number of bishops. Not calling out anybody, but just why is that happening? Why do we have heterodox positions and heretical positions, especially around LGBTQ morality, sexual morality involving gay couples, homosexual marriage, and the, uh, the welcoming to communion of men who are having sex with men. Let's go and get insight from St. Peter Damien and from Pope Gregory VII, who pointed to the corruption of the bishops and clergy were principally associated with sexual immorality, in particular of sodomy, or bishops and priests were having sex with men. Now, when we hear about this, 
you can probably draw some lines and think about it and say, well, if that's something that has impacted their lives, then, of course, they may gently, over time, gradually begin to introduce into language clever ways of introducing the lifestyle and behavior as acceptable and up-to-date that ought to be tolerated at first and then accepted and celebrated in the end. That's darkness and evil, says St. Peter Damien. That's a brokenness and a spiritual bondage that must be rejected and reformed, so says Pope Gregory, St. Pope Gregory VII. And you stop and say, well, wait a minute, Tom. Is it, can it really be that like widespread? Isn't this just an anecdotal thing that maybe involves one or other bishop or priest? Well, this is where, unfortunately, I have too much background So I was at the North American College in the late 80s. So the North American College has seminarians come from uh, around the country, and so they'll often send, uh, let's call them, they used to call it the Bishop Factory, because a great percentage of bishops uh, back at that time, and, and probably statistically still the case, came from the North American College. They spent their major seminary, their theology years there in Rome at the North American College, and then um, were ordained and then go back to their dioceses. And they're often sent there because of particular gifts, intellectual gifts or other personal gifts or for other uh, other reasons that, that are exemplary. And then when they come back, they often end up taking positions of leadership. So I, I don't know the last time I counted, but among the hundred and... 20 or 130 or 40 guys that I was at the North American College with in my my three years there. I was there for three years. I left before my fourth year. After my fourth year of theology, I would have been ordained, but I was never ordained. So in my three years there, about 140 guys or so, I think there are about 20 bishops. So about 20 of them are now bishops. And uh, the reality is that some of them when they were in the seminary, had a reputation that they were having sex with other seminarians. And sadly, this wasn't, this isn't something that was talked about scandalously. It was well known. It was something that was identifiable by men who sat together, uh, seminarians who would sit together in the, uh, in, in the chapel for prayer, uh, known to be a gay couple, you know, a guy that was having sex with, you know, his his fellow seminarian, and sadly also involving um, one or more faculty members. And so uh, one for sure, because the Pennsylvania report uh, highlighted one of the faculty members of my time that was there, and he sadly made a, um, he had a, Let's say he had an interaction with me that um, was uh, sadly something that was inviting um, a homosexual or you know a, a sexual response, and it was something that was again known. It was something that was accepted by a number of guys, even though it wasn't talked about overtly among the the seminary community directly. It was for sure something that involved a number of the seminarians. And when I say a number, I mean 20, 25% of the seminarians. Based on the anecdotes I've been able to pull together 
since my time there talking with some of my classmates and other guys whom I came to find out had been uh, been approached for sexual uh, activity by other seminarians or by faculty members. And so you know, that that is a place where guys would have been approached, would have been groomed, that I was told about the, the grooming process of how uh, seminarians would try to draw others into their circle where they would be sexually active together. And I, I was left out of that targeting process by other seminarians, probably because I was pretty out loud Jesus. <laughs> I was pretty evangelistic and charismatic and orthodox and conservative and off it goes. So uh, guys left me alone. Uh, I, I, they, but I can remember sitting at table one time and the conversation these two guys had were so overtly sexual towards each other with all the innuendo they were doing. And afterwards, a buddy of mine pulled me aside and said, what were you doing sitting with them at dinner? And I said, well, I just, I go and I sit where I believe God's leading me. And he says, well, I'm not, I'm not sure who led you that time, but you were sitting with two of the leaders of the uh, of the the gay community here at the North American College. I'm like, there's such a thing? So, well, imagine what happens, right? So a number of these guys are now vicar generals, bishops, and archbishop, and um, and guys that hold positions of vocation director that were having sex with other seminarians and or faculty members while they were at the North American College. So let's just say that there is a portion of the leadership in the Catholic Church in the United States that would have an openness to the kind of positions that you're hearing promoted and supported by Cardinal McElroy and other bishops towards the LGBTQ community. And it is a rationalized position that celibacy means restraining oneself from sexual activity with women, but that leaves open the possibility of having sexual expression and sexual activity with men. Yeah, that is actually what is said. And so that level of corruption continues. And now they're in leadership. And so don't be surprised. Don't be shocked that you'd see a lack of pushback, a, lot, a lack of strong, courageous, manly, heroic pushback against the transgender ideology and against natural marriage as between a man and a woman and God creating us male and female. It's not likely going to happen en masse by the bishops. It'll have to be a Saint Peter Damien and a Pope Gregory VII, a Saint uh, Gregorian reform. It's going to need a new reform. And then quickly, and lastly, you look at the 500 years ahead and you have the, the comforts, the lifestyle, the luxury, the political intrigue and power associated with the position of bishops that led to levels of corruption that gave rise to a response that was the Protestant revolt, Protestantism, and the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Well, what do we see today? We see that it is a very comfortable lifestyle that is made available to bishops. And in order to become a bishop, this is something I've spoken about before. This is, again, this isn't a secret. This isn't something that is, like, disputed. But 
the quality that makes someone the best candidate to be a bishop is not courageous, prophetic capacity to dynamically lead the church and the forces that come against them in the world today. No, it's someone who is deferential to the bishop that they're serving. And they stay in line. They are company men who serve faithfully. They uh, follow the 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 orders and, and support the initiatives of the bishop. And as a result, they get increasingly important positions. And that makes them a good candidate to be a bishop. They get they go along to get along and they don't step out of line. They don't push back. They don't uh, speak in ways that are too uh, prophetic or too strong. And, and, and sadly, what you'll see that happens is it's very comfortable to remain in those kind of positions. And then when they become a bishop, they don't know how to push back. They don't know how to stand up and speak out. And, and again, this isn't everybody. This isn't anybody's name. This is just a trend that you see because, you, again, you just don't hear. You don't hear strong uh, courageous, heroic, ongoing positions that bishops speak against contraception, against no-fault divorce, against uh, abortion, against gay marriage, now against transgender ideology. You just don't hear it. And it's very easy to remain comfortable in, in those positions of power. And if you speak out too much, you can discover what will happen to those priests. They get sidelined and they get pushed off into the far edges and the far reaches of the diocese. That's what happens to someone who's a little bit too enthusiastic and too strong. And it's the ones that go along and get along, continue to grow in their assignments until they become candidates for bishops themselves. That's not going to give rise to uh, a St. Philip Neri and a St. Robert Bellarmine. That's why we need to pray and fast. God bless your day. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.